0: Okay, everybody, welcome. Uh, this is the first of two uh, podcasts that uh, Peter and I are going to do on Blade Runner, uh, trying to focus on uh, things that haven't been covered in uh, on Blade Runner ad nauseum. Um, so the first uh, podcast, we're going to do the making of Blade Runner and uh, sort of how it came to be. And then the second podcast uh, we'll do
1: is going to be the legacy of Blade Runner. Welcome, Peter. Hey, Doug. You know, you can't be super dorky unless you do twice the amount of Blade Runner podcasts.
0: (laughs) That means we have to do seven 2001 podcasts, a seven-parter.
1: We could do a seven-parter on Kubrick in general. You could probably Yeah, you could do a 20-parter on Kubrick. I bet you there's somebody that does a podcast only on kubrick and yeah, i also there, bet you there, know the answer to that question Yeah, no
0: there's a kubrick cast which is quite good and then there are other podcasts but kubrick cast is kind of the one that's most dedicated to him it's pretty good i listen to all of kubrick cast so if you're out there listening kubrick cast people i listened to everything it was great um but you, you know it's rock. funny it's funny that you say that because it's funny you mentioned kubrick because um hampton fancher who, uh, wrote, wrote the screenplay. Well, uh, one of the versions of the screenplay, he actually said that, uh, he said that the only person that he really kind of felt was similar to, uh, Ridley Scott in terms of filmmaking, uh, was Stanley Kubrick. Although that was said at a time when he was making things like, uh, a, you know, Alien and Blade Runner. I don't know if we could say that in the, uh, Prometheus Gladiator. and Alien Covenant <laughs> era. <laughs> we should do uh we should do an alien podcast at some point i watched alien covenant uh, last week and Ooh, ooh, let's just say really? it's a long way. Ugh, let's just say it's a long way from Blade Runner, but we're getting we're getting far afield.
1: We haven't done Aliens yet, but you know, I think their careers are just going in reverse because Kubrick started out with Spartacus, you know, and then right then he made Barry Lyndon, you know, like or, well, I actually not Barry after. Linden. I, Barry I Linden love Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon actually it's one of my favorite
0: films. Like I think it's kind of the tarnished and forgotten Kubrick film, but like like I think to it's, me it might be me, my fave. It's not my favorite, but to me, like it's so good. I I have to just watch it in pieces. Like if I watch too much of it at a time, like I feel like I'm not thinking enough about it. So I, I've watched Barry Lyndon maybe three or four times in the last couple of years and I'll watch it in about 20 minute, 20 minute shots. Um, by the way, only, only Stanley Kubra could get those kind of performances out of, you know, Ryan O'Neill and Marissa Berenson.
1: I think that movie. I think that as many people know about, as many film buffs know about Kubrick. I bet you, maybe one out of four have really seen Barry Lyndon, and I think it's it's inc- I think it's totally underrated.
0: Well, and I think that sort of like people tend to remember his more extreme or violent pictures, like Full Metal Jacket, uh, you know, where The Shining, or Two Thousand One, and whereas you know, like it's a sort of like period piece tone movie, you know. Yeah. Uh, Just just a different different kind of film for Kubrick. Although in many ways, you know, like when you read the most violent. Well, when you read when you read Kubrick talking about it, like I think it was one of his favorite films. Like he doesn't speak super positively about a lot of his films, but I think he had a good time making uh, Barry Lyndon. I actually saw Barry Lyndon in the theater. I was super little and I, all I remember is that it was like endless and like just sort of dying in the theater waiting for it to be over. I was probably, I know I was a very small kid. I, it was at the Sunrise Mall, by the way.
1: <laughs> yeah. Most people st- would probably still have that reaction when watching
0: Barry Lyndon. <laughs> right. Um, so this is, uh, this is Ridley Scott's, it's his third film. Like that's it. Uh, he made the duelists in 77, which I have not seen. Um uh which stars by the way Keith Carradine and Harvey Keitel, go figure. Um and then he made Alien, and, and I've read in a couple of places various versions of the quote that that he saw Star Wars and basically said, I'm making the wrong kind of films. I've gotta shift gears. And he shifted gears to really what was a horror sci-fi film. And then this is his very first year. Sorry, this is his very first film. After Alien, although in between, right, he burned a year of his life working on Dune, right, before he eventually abandoned Dune, which ultimately got passed up, as we know, to David Lynch. Uh, But then he ended up with this.
1: Yes. And um, this, instead of the horror sci-fi movie, this is the film noir sci-fi movie.
0: Right, which really has no horror elements. I mean, there's some suspense and there's some violence, but there's really nothing in this that you could consider horror. And maybe he just wanted to do something different. Um, uh, have you read? Um, did you read uh, the source material? Did you read your
1: Android's Dream of Electric Sheep? Yes, I mean, a long time ago, but yeah. So I mean, I read this an- is the first uh, movie I think. Also, this is the first movie that was made out of one of philip k dick's stories or novels Um,
0: yeah if it wasn't the first
1: it was close to the first yeah Um, i I think i mean he was still alive when they shot the oh yeah oh yeah he was was the end of his life
0: yeah i think he actually died possibly even during the production
1: i think the post-production yeah he died before it came out but he saw an effects um, like an effects reel that was twenty or thirty minutes. Um, that the studio invited him in to see, and supposedly was quite happy with it.
0: Huh, that's interesting. You know, I didn't know until many years later. I mean, maybe ten or fifteen years later that that uh, do androids dream of electric sheep can be really thought of as a sequel. Uh, because I read. Uh, I bought at a paperback book palace, one of those places I read We Can Build You, which is a 72 Philip K. Dick novel that's essentially about the creation of the first replicants, or they, they call them, I think they call them simulacra and that, but they're essentially
1: replicants. Isn't that the Abraham Lincoln?
0: Right. That's In where that they book. build uh, Edwin Stanton and Abe Lincoln. And right. And I think Abe Lincoln commits suicide because he realizes that they built him to be a slave. <laughs> Um, but that's essentially, you know, like that's about a large corporation or corporate interest essentially building, you know, lifelike, uh, replicants. But, uh, I don't think that Dick himself ever explicitly said that, um, that the two books were directly related, but when you read them, they clearly are. Although what's interesting is how different, um, how different the book is from, uh, the movie of Blade Runner and
1: for example yeah, it's quite different and i remember um a lot of drug I, use
0: yeah yeah and and a very just a completely different setup and ending um everything is i mean it's essentially a totally different story with the exception of the replicants and deckard the right. you know it's funny cuz when the movie came out we'll talk about when we saw the movie cuz i actually saw this with you at the sunrise mall by the way right um uh, but when I by the saw way, my this-
1: my TV is larger than the movie screen at the Sunrise Mall.
0: <laughs> I believe it. Remember the big cube outside? Anyway, we digress. Um- But I remember I I saw it, and then very quickly I bought the graphic novel, which then they just call a comic book, like the sort of graphic novel version, which was the same as the movie. And then I went to the Walden books and the B. Dalton, the whatever, and I bought the the tie in, which had the movie poster on the cover. And about 30 pages in, you know, I was just, we were just like in whatever seventh grade or something. 13, yeah. Um, uh, I just remember being shocked at how different it was, you know, it just was a completely different uh, story with a completely, different and tone. And honestly, well, and in all fairness, I was just way, uh, way too young to read it, like, I just, it just went over my right. head, I didn't really get it.
1: Right, and but we were blown away by the movie, completely blown away.
0: I, well, enormously. You know, it's funny because I think like you, I had sort of, you know, up to that point, I had sort of been immersed in science fiction, both television science fiction and film science fiction. I mean, I just, anything I could possibly see, I watched as a kid. And, and I liked, you know, I was pretty, I mean, I kind of liked everything at that point, you know, like when you're that young, you don't really know what's good or bad. And I remember when we saw Blade Runner, I remember, I still remember we sat on the left side of the theater. When we saw Blade Runner, I remember thinking like, even then I was aware like, this is a whole cut above. Yeah. Like what we are used to. And like, like I knew right then and there, it reminded me of like when I saw, for example, you know, Duck Soup the first time, like I knew like, wow, this is really something special and different and sort of like something that's gone so far beyond a genre that. I remember I came home, and I I immediately told my dad about it. And the very next day, we went back, and I saw it again with my dad the next day.
1: Yeah, it was almost like a sulcus in your frontal lobe popped open (laughs) while you were
0: (laughs) boink. Well, and there was so much that was new. Do you know what I mean? Like there was so much that we had never seen or, um, you know, like cyberpunk didn't exist. You know what I mean? Like, like Japanese animation, like we had only seen limited, like Japanese animation kind of had some of this look already. And, but you know, we had never seen that. And for example, um, like both Ridley Scott and uh, Hampton Fancher acknowledged that a lot of this, they borrowed slash stole from heavy metal, the magazine, not the movie. But, you know, you and I had never read heavy metal at that point. Right. You know, so it was just, it was really like a whole cut above. And the fact that, you know, like it had a sort of complex, dark ending, you know, like, I just remember like, again, even as a kid knowing like this was just, just something completely different.
1: Well, the ending was not as dark as the intended ending, <laughs> right? <laughs> because out of the many different versions of this film that have floated around, the main difference really is is the ending and the and the and the uh, overdub, the Harrison Ford overdub, because this the studio release has uh, narration that's inserted by Harrison Ford to help explain the story, the plot elements. To an audience that apparently uh, when they tested the when they they tested the film um, with with potential audience as studios are wont to do people couldn't follow it so they stuck an over uh, they stuck a voice over in of Harrison Ford explaining, for example, what replicants are, how they're not allowed, who he was, who the police captain is, et cetera. Right. To what city you speak going.
0: Is. Well, and also it gives right. it it gives it like sort of a more of a gumshoe angle. You know what I'm right. saying? Like Right. Like, you know, they may as well have had Humphrey Bogart do that narration, which apparently Harrison Ford was very opposed to doing. They say that uh, one of the reasons that the, the narration is delivered in such a flat way is because Harrison Ford was very opposed to doing it in the first place, but
1: basically was contractually bound to do right. what had to. And, and the, the other difference is that the ending in the theatric release has them driving off. Well, actually, it's stock footage. that From The Shining. Right, it has It's, them, it's actually right, a little bit of
0: Kubrick in there.
1: That's right, and it has them um, driving, driving off in, sort of into the sunset, literally, with, with the with the uh, the the over uh, voiceover saying that that Rachel's special and she has no expiration date. Right, so. and she'll live forever. Right. Um.
0: And you could, yeah, and you can see at the same time why both Ridley Scott didn't want that, and at the same time why the studio did. Like both their points
1: of view kind of are understandable, right? Um, Although I think that you can you can probably defend the voiceover a little more than that ending.
0: Yeah, it's and it's funny because the voiceover never really bothered me. Like like having seen. I think I've seen every version of this movie that is available to see. Some of the versions, they don't exist, uh, you know, in the commercial space. But, like, having seen both, I don't actually have particularly strong feelings on the the voiceover. Like, it neither really helps nor hurts the movie. But the other big difference, too, is is in the original version, the theatrical version that we saw, it really – there's virtually no hint that Deckard himself – may be a replicant whereas in most of the other versions especially those that contain the unicorn which we'll talk about um it's it's more than hinted at that deckard himself is a replicant
1: right which fits also with with all uh phil dick what is real and what isn't themes right right and in the book one of the themes in the book is that
0: um You know, he's looking for a handful of replicants, and then it turns out in the book that they're everywhere. And then he starts wondering if there's any people left. Um, And one of the things that he debates in the movie is there's, sorry, in the book, is in the book, there's very open discussion of whether or not Deckard himself is a replicant. There's a, in the original version. There's a couple of hints that Deckard himself may be a replicant, like the thing with the eyes, like when they do the cat's eyes. All the replicants have the cat's eyes, mm-hmm. and in one or two shots, you know Harrison Ford's eyes do it, probably just because of the lighting they had set up. Right. And then there's the mystery of the sixth replicant, right? Because they say in the they say in the movie that there's six of them, right? Pris, Zora, uh, Roy. Um, Leon, and then the one who gets killed in the beginning, but that's only five. I thought they Um, said
1: two get killed in the beginning.
0: I know, I'm pretty sure it's just one. Um, Which always raises the question of who's the sixth replicant? And then, I remember even in the 80s reading, you know, in genre magazines, people hypothesizing just based on the theatrical version that perhaps Deckard himself is the sixth replicant. Although, apparently none of that's true. Apparently, the sixth replicant was supposed to be named Mary, uh, who they had hired an actress and and written a part for her. And then she got – her part got excised. So apparently right. the sixth replicant was never supposed to be Harrison Ford. Yeah. And then uh, – so I guess – and then Hampton, Fancher, and uh, Dick had uh, – sorry, Hampton, Fancher, and Ridley Scott had a big falling out. Um. And the the interview I read, I read a really good piece where Hampton Fancher said that he had a lot of arguments with Ridley Scott about how they should be doing the movie. And then he thought he won about half of them, and then he found out that he won none of them. And uh, Ridley Scott had, you know, sometimes yesed him and never, ever incorporated his suggestion. So he left
1: the project and was replaced by David Peoples, I believe. Right. And um, I think that Scott hired Peoples basically to... You know, Scott, Scott had the project and he hired David Peoples at that point. Right.
0: David Peoples,
1: by the way, of Unforgiven fame. Oh, I didn't actually realize that. He
0: wrote Unforgiven and he wrote another movie that you like, a movie that you like that I like, but I think you like more than me. He wrote, also wrote 12 Monkeys.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: Yeah. So that's, by the way, if you're going to have three movies to your credit, 12 Monkeys, Unforgiven and Blade Runner, not too bad.
1: Yeah. PFG. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Um, uh, and then, um, and and I guess, so I, so I think who's given story credit in this. By the way, all
1: three movies, very cheerful. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So I guess it says screenplay by Hampton Fancher and David Peoples. That's how they, that's how it's, uh, that's how it's
1: done in the movie. Right. Um, Very common though, in, in Hollywood to just tack people on, right. Even if they're no longer involved you know, they they just add the credits up and stick them on. Right. And then um
0: uh the effects by, right? Since we're talking Kubrick, effects Trumbull. by right, Doug Trumbull, right? The creator of the Stargate sequence, the slit scan camera for two thousand and one, the per- the person who hand built the moon bus in two thousand and one, all Doug right. Trumbull. Um uh, and I guess you know this is you know this is whatever fifteen years on or close to fifteen years on from two thousand one. So so, but some just again amazing model and lighting work, yep. uh, just from top to bottom. And then uh,
1: you know who their famous futurist was, Sid Mead. Right, the, right. Did all the sketches and the and um, basically the you know visually. The movie its still quite impressive, and it was—it compl- was really uh, astonishing at the time because, you know, the 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 dirty kind of future, like in Star Wars, the way the you know the 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 Millennium Falcon was dirty and Luke's helmet was banged up and all that stuff, right? And then you had 2001, right? Looked completely different because it was realistic in a way, right? But other than that, nothing had really on to this point where you have a a sort of a not only is it a a dystopian future it's crowded it's realistic it's multicultural it's raining it's depressing In los angeles it's raining and it's right and it's la and everybody's leaving the planet
0: right there's uh, sort of there's sort of the hint that those who could have left have already done so like these are the people who couldn't afford the off-world colonies Right, or
1: rejected for <laughs> or some rejected.
0: reason. I love the way, by the way, that the blimp for the off world colonies, like it, it just like it's this terrible ad. A new life awaits you right. on the off world colony, a golden right, opportunity.
1: Constantly droning away, like right, with a horn it's, on it. It's, <laughs> it's in like 10 scenes, you know, where it's in the background. Sort of like you know, just mocking you for being a loser stuck in the rain, and and
0: if I remember correctly, it's it's implied. I think I mean again, I might be mixing like stuff from the sequel novels or the graphic novel or Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. It's also sort of implied somewhere in the Blade Runner verse that the off-world colonies suck. You know, like I'm sure. like they're not. You know, you're off on some rock. You know, wearing a spacesuit. You know, trying to terraform some rock somewhere. You know, yeah, that's having that's sex outland. with having sex with your
1: replica. <laughs> actually, the offworld yeah, colonies. Yeah, at least you have is...
0: a replicant to come home to at
1: night, <laughs> right? You got Daryl Hannah, right?
0: <laughs> hey, Although, you could do worse.
1: <laughs> it's it's actually uh, Outland. That those are the off-world colonies. <laughs> You get right. some uh, th- red amphetamine juice. That I eject. think, didn't
0: we talk in in uh, in the Outland podcast that some people have speculated that Outland and Blade Runner take place in the same universe? Maybe not in the exact same time, but the same universe. Right. I mean, they sure look like they could. Right. You know? Oh, no. You know, we talked about that alien, alien, alien. Outland appear to take
1: place in the same universe,
0: right. although there's no reason the this corporate. theoretically, you know, maybe the company is the Tyrell Corporation instead of weyland Utani. you know?
1: Yeah, I think people all got the, at, at the same time, this was, you know, this is post Watergate. This is, uh, this is the recession, right? The big recession, the, uh, the oil shortage, right? So people started getting the idea that like, maybe megacorps are not so great. You
0: well, know? And, th- and I think this was also sort of like the Japanese influence, like the zaibatsu, like the company
1: you would nope. join as a young person and working until you basically retired and or died. Right. And this is when, you know, Japan was this ascendant economic giant that was gonna basically steamroll us. And then you got paranoiacs like Michael Crichton getting in on the act shortly thereafter.
0: Right. What was that what was that Michael Crichton movie called where Rising the Rising Sun? Oh yes.
1: Oh, so, super so paranoid. It was super paranoid that book.
0: <laughs> but you know, like I mean, just, there's so many, just, just getting back to the effects or sort of the look like, I mean, there's not one great shot in this movie. There's not 20 great shots. There's a hundred great shots. You know what I'm saying? Like even like, even little bits, like, for example, like the, like the window darkening shade coming down at the Tyrell corporation's headquarter at sunset, you know, like that's a small bit, but it sets the tone, you know, or, or the garbage truck going by. Yep, you know, or the little the little crappy noodle bar, like you know, the noodles like you know, like like you're, you're sitting half in the rain, only partially covered by the awning, eating your
1: noodle bowl.
0: Four yeah, dumplings, mean, four, two, two, four.
1: Yes, I mean the movie's totally immersive, and it really it's really grim. I mean this this is not a lighthearted picture. The you know the, the it looks like it feels the way the dialogue is, they all go together and it's, it's all, it's pretty grim and it looks incredible. I mean, even like the, the, the void conf machine, you know, the thing is, is amazing looking and it doesn't look like some goofy design that they came up with. Um, you know, it doesn't have a bunch of lasers on it. It doesn't have, <laughs> right. it doesn't, doesn't talk. There's no, there's no LEDs, you know, there's not an LED in sight.
0: Well, and this, you know? to me, what what when we I remember when we saw, it, and again, like I think your first impressions are important. Like to me, the scary thing about the void comp machine was it breathed. You know, like it has oh, a yeah. bellows. You know, yep. like is it is it smelling you or is it like like it, it was like it was almost sort of like it gave it a living aspect to it. Yep. Um, and, and I like the way too, like that scene where he uh, you see the void comp machine twice, right? When yep. Holden interrogates Leon, and then later when. Deckard interrogates Deckard. Rachel, but you right. get the sense like that's a long scene. Like they're sitting there a long time going over the questions. Um my favorite effect in the whole movie is the billboard of the Japanese woman swallowing the candy or the pill.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, like that is such a like a like a striking and arresting bit that's just sort of thrown in the background. It's never explained what they're selling. Like literally, I don't know. Like, is it a medication? Is it a candy? Is it like what is she putting in her mouth? Yeah, you don't know. You know how they did that, by the way. Like they just projected it onto basically like a, a, a like a light bright. You know, like those are just little tiny clear pieces of plastic, but they look like individual pixels when you project onto them. Cool. So all it is is really they're just running a little film loop on that. But I think you awesome. actually see – I think you see the Japanese woman do that twice. I think twice the spinner flies past it in the movie. I think once when he's going to police headquarters and once when he's coming back.
1: Um, is
0: it worth commenting on the Bradbury?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, the uh, Right, as a set. Yeah, I mean, they shot it in a – that's a, a big part of the movie, Um And there's also Sebastian's apartment in Bradbury Building in LA. And they also, you know, they use some tunnels um, in in LA and there's something else. I mean, I know that they they use a few places in LA and the rest of the movie's shot on set.
0: You, You know, what's funny is, I had seen the Bradbury and other movies and other TV shows and, and they filmed it in such a different way in Blade Runner that I did not recognize it at all and for example um you know by the time I saw Blade Runner I had um you know I had seen and absorbed every episode of The Outer Limits like my dad loved The Outer Limits so we watched The Outer Limits a lot and um, I believe Demon with a Glass Hand, which is written by Harlan Ellison of City on the Edge of Forever fame,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, he wrote that. But that's filmed in the Bradbury as well. And you would never kind of know that it's the same building from the way that it's lit and shot um, <clears throat> as, as the way it's done in Blade Runner. It's very impressive.
1: Yeah, you, you basically shoot it at night. Um, with high, mostly with with some high key lighting and a bunch of rain, and then then you get right. you get whereas, Blade Runner. right? Whereas, for example, in the outer limits, it's
0: done during the day in an extremely stark, brightly lit manner. Have you ever seen? By the way, have you ever seen Demon with a Glass Hand? I'm sure I've seen it. It stars Robert Culp. Believe it or not, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's with like this guy who basically has a computer. He wakes up, and he has his left hand is gone, and he's got a computer where his hand used to be, and he's sort of trying to run around and figure out why he's here and what's going on. And the woman in it, by the way, is Arlene Martel, who played Tipring in Amok Time,
1: <laughs>
0: just to sort of bring it all back home. Um <sighs> And then I guess um, what do you? I mean, I guess we should talk about the casting, right? I mean, this is a this is a cast that went on to do a lot of big stuff,
1: right? And I guess they, oh, right? So a bunch of people were new, like Sean Young as Rachel and Daryl Hannah as Pris and who else? I was – I think this n- is
0: Daryl Hannah's. I'm pretty sure this is Daryl Hannah's first film. They I think wanted, it is. by the way, they wanted Rachel to be played by Barbara Hershey. And then they basically decided that as good as she was, she was too old. And the the phrase that Ridley Scott used was he wanted Rage to look like she had just emerged from the VAT. And hmm. to do that, they had to have somebody who looked completely young and fresh. And that's how they replaced Hershey with Sean Young.
1: Right. And um I don't know if she ever made anything else really good besides this. But
0: she's in Dune. She's a small part in Dune as Chani. Right. And then sort of right. she sort of famously
1: career imploded. Right. But uh I guess um I, I didn't Harrison Ford was not was not a shoe-in, I guess, until later on. I mean that he became a big star after Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? And this is also post Empire. This is eighty two. Right. So this is is, this is post
0: empire. So, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, Harrison Ford is as big as he's going to be, I guess.
1: Right. and Raiders of the Lost Ark was a massive, just massive hit. And he's also, you know, he's the he's the main star of that movie. He's the star of that movie. So he Um, he's huge at that point.
0: Right. That's what, no, but I mean, he's the anchor for the whole movie. I mean, I think, I think, does his name appear above the title? I'm pretty sure. I don't have the poster in front of me, but I'm pretty sure his name appears above the title of the movie. Yeah. So, I, think I mean, you're he's right. the anchor. He's the anchor. But, you know, it's funny. Like, in a lot of ways, he's less memorable than, for example, Rachel or J.F. Sebastian or even uh, Eldon Terrell.
1: Terrell and, um, uh, and, and Rutger Hauer, I mean, Roy yeah, Batty is mean, I mean, incredibly memorable. I mean, yeah,
0: before. no, you're totally right. I mean, yeah. I mean, he's kind of almost the flattest.
1: Well, he's, he's almost he's, the
0: flattest of the characters.
1: I mean, he's so, he's just miserably dysthymic. I mean, in the whole movie, the guy is just, he's rained on and miserable.
0: In the book, he's sort of in the process of getting a divorce as well. Um, But, you know, like Joe Turkle as Eldon Terrell does a tremendous amount with just a few scenes. Yep. You know, and up to and and including, I mean, the most frightening moment in the movie is is Eldon, at least to me, is Eldon Terrell's death. Yeah. Right. Again, bringing us, as I always like to point out, back to Frankenstein. Um, But, you know, I certainly did not see that coming. uh, And especially the way that he kills him. You know, like, cause it's, it's both sort of like, it's, it's like, I don't know, I'm, I'm not going to get this right, but it's sort of like both passionate and brutal, like, cause he kisses him and then he yeah, gouges his eyes out and crushes his skull. Like, right. It's all kinda, at once.
1: It's, right. It's Oedipal. And weirdly, I mean, well, except that he's a man, but you know, you get the idea. It's not his mom, but right. anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I can't believe the studio let that in there. Well,
0: you know, and it's such a great scene because, you know, Roy has been thinking and learning and reading, and he's coming up with every possible way that maybe they could extend his life, and Terrell has already thought of it and already investigated it and already tried it, and nothing works.
1: Right. right? And so he the really... answer
0: is, you're going to die. So really, at that point, Roy has
1: nothing to lose. Right. And Roy punishes him just for making him miserable, in a way, you know, I mean, he just, it's a complex moment. I mean, Roy's, Roy's a complex guy. I mean, Roy is the, is every person feeling existential anxiety, but compressed into this short time, you know? Combined
0: with his incredible talents. You know what I mean? Like, he's not a regular person, like, hence the line about the candle that burns right. you know, and he twice as bright and half as long. Ever
1: so brightly, Roy. Right, so very
0: brightly. Um, but you know what I love too in that scene is, you know, um, William Sanderson who plays Sebastian, you know, he realizes he's been had like, like he didn't, he realizes right there all at once. Like he didn't accidentally meet Pris on the street. Like that was a setup to get, to get to him so that they could bring him to Tyrell. And then he flees the room. And then you see Roy going down in the elevator and it's implied that, that Sebastian is killed by Roy. Right. Although it's never shown, but I mean, even, I mean, even way back when I always interpreted it as,
1: yeah, that Sebastian is
0: killed. Right. Cause yeah. now he knows, right. He's a witness. Yeah. <clears throat> um, we should talk about Rutger Hauer, but I talk about stealing the movie.
1: Yeah. Boy, is he good. I mean, he, he, right. So, you know, his characters, I guess, I think you're right. I think that the Rutger Hauer and Terrell are sort of the, that's the apex of the movie in some ways. Um, But the fight afterwards being the resolution. Right. Right. And um, right. That the resolution to existential anxiety is just, you know, be nice and do what you can.
0: Right, and it resolves the plot
1: for the movie. Right. And I I uh, think but but those two, boy, I mean, their interactions really are are intense. But it's also very heavily implied that really
0: if Roy wanted to, he could have killed Deckard any time. You know, he yes. even gives him back his gun. Like, he's just playing at that point. Like, like he's he, he's bounding through the building. He's starting to break down. Like, he knows he's starting to fail. Right. You know, but, but you know, he, he can't just kill Deckard at this point. Like, after all he's thought and suffered and learned and done, like, he can't just kill Deckard and
1: die. And I, I think, though, that he's toying with him to amuse himself. I don't think he fully decides until the very end.
0: No, when, when he, he sees him. when he sees Deckard hanging.
1: Right. And then he then he just decides that in that moment he's gonna preserve somebody's life.
0: Well, and I think also, too, he also wants someone to remember him. Like like yeah. he wants to deliver the monologue to someone. Like he's thinking about all he's done and all he's seen and all he's experienced, and he realizes that if he kills Deckard, and then he's alone on this rooftop then everything just vanishes so at least in a little way he's remembered by deckard cuz all of the other replicants at this point are killed
1: right um his last yeah, but, mark on the world is and to and to just share the moment with someone not to be alone when he dies
0: yeah well. that's a good point i didn't think of that too um yeah that's a good, that's a really good thought um in the in the movie, too, you know, like there's a sort of crucifixion angle to Roy a little bit as well, right? Like he sort of – he dies a little bit for, for uh, Deckard's sins. I mean I mean, he even has mm-hmm. a nail in his hand when he yeah. dies, um, which, at the, you know, again, I don't think I picked up the meaning of that as a kid. <laughs> now it's right. pretty obvious. But at the time, right. I thought he was just doing it to somehow stimulate himself and keep himself alive more. That was sort of how I interpreted it as a kid right um did you ever read by the way did you ever read any of the sequels i think there's there's a couple of sequel novels that are sort of like a uh, quote-unquote sanctioned um um I I've read uh, Blade Runner Two. By the way, worst title ever. Uh, but Blade Runner Two, <laughs> <laughs> which is called The Edge of Human, uh, that was written by G.W. Jeter, uh, and it's okay. It's not great. It's not terrible. Like it's like a good throwaway. <sighs> um, it's a good Wait throwaway a sci-fi book.
1: The only way to make Blade Runner Two worse as a title is to call it Blade Runner Two: The Edge of Human. That's even worse than just calling it Blade Runner 2. That's true. But then, and then there's another
0: one. There's like, there's Replicant Night, I think, by the same guy. And I didn't read that
1: one. Don't forget um, about um, Leon Kowalski, Garbage Man. I think that's the, the last sequel. <laughs> Replicant Garbage Man. <laughs>
0: um, what was I going to say? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there is a two-book series um, – I'm, I'm just – I'm looking up. I'm trying to remember um, the title to it. There is a two-book series uh, that you can read on Kindle um, that is phenomenal. I'm trying to find the, the title of it. Um, it's written by a Spanish woman. They're translated from Spanish, and I read them uh, both and they are about uh a future society where there's a lot of replicants running around and the replicant in this book is a the main character is a woman um and it's funny because number one it's totally unlicensed number two they're both tremendous great books um and they even sort of talk about blade runner like the replicants all talk about how like they've all seen blade runner like they've watched the movie um hmm. I'll I'll try to see Clever. if I can find it. But um in that they the replicants do mandatory military service or some sort of some sort of service, and then they are uh freed uh freed for society for the rest of their life.
1: Which is still a short lifespan.
0: Yeah, shortened. I think they get like ten years, and like a, a sort of a big thread in the book is um is like every chapter begins with, you know, four months, three days, you know, 19 hours. Like the, uh, like the, the, the replicants are very, very aware of, of how much time they have. Right. And then, and because they build limited models, they, they meet other people who look exactly like them. Like you know, like they only bothered to make so many models, so they they occasionally run into someone who looks exactly like them, even though they you know it's a totally different person with different memories. So I found it. Um, the it's it's Rosa Montero. Uh, the first one is Tears in Rain. Um, it's I read this a couple of years ago. Like it wasn't good. It was great. If you ever get a chance, I remember you you mentioning that. You uh, know, I'll see what, I can, what the other one is called really quick. I don't want to get too far off. But that's not too far off top. Same author, Blade though. Runner. Yeah, and she wrote, too. And I don't know how she wrote them, uh, you know, I don't know how she wrote them without paying licensing fees. I mean, like I said, they even talk about Blade Runner in the book. Hmm. Uh, and the main character is a, a, a shaved head android named Bruna Husky. <laughs> oh and the second one is the first one is uh tears and rain the second one is uh weight of the heart which is not as good as the first one but i, I think of all the sort of like spin-offs and things that borrowed from blade runner tears and rain was at least to me by far and away like the most original and the best hmm. and like the like the the replicants buy like illegal memories you know, and like like they can occasionally find or meet the people who wrote their program or wrote their memories and things like that. It's really, really well done. It's kind of like like they like she had the space to take a lot of the ideas in Blade Run and expand them to four or five hundred pages. You know what I mean? Right. Um who plays Kowalski again? Kowalski. Is that Brian James? I might be getting that wrong. Who plays
1: Leon? Brian James, yeah. B R I O N yeah
0: right, and he was supposed to have a bigger part, like there was supposed to be a scene where he was gonna have a, another fight uh with decker that that cut cut out like he was gonna be how think i think when when he goes to their apartment, he was supposed to be in the apartment and they cut that out right um and then Zora played by Joanna Cassidy right. So Joanna Cassidy, I didn't see in anything for a long, long time. But in the fourth season of Enterprise, she plays to Paul's mother.
1: She's been in some other stuff. I've, she she had a career. I know I've seen her in in other things.
0: She was in Six Feet Under, which I never saw. I think that I think that that was a major part uh, of Six Feet Under, but I never saw Six Feet Under. So I kind of like know her mostly from Blade Runner. And from her work on Enterprise. Um, she played Tales. <laughs> uh, she was Tapal's mom. There's a couple of episodes. There's a, an arc in the fourth season of Enterprise called The Forge, where they go back to Vulcan. Um, and they run around on Vulcan. Um, and she's there for part of that. That episode, by the way, just just to go a little off that episode is interesting because it, it takes some elements from the animated series, Star Trek, the animated series, and it uses them in live action, Star Trek, thus making certain aspects of the animated series Canon. Hmm. So like, it's very debatable whether the animated series is Canon or not. Uh, but, uh, but they, they purposely validated some stuff from the animated series, but we digress again, as we often do. um, you know, I wonder what I haven't read a ton about what Ridley Scott thinks about this movie years on. I mean, like he's not directing the new one,
1: right? Christopher Nolan supposedly.
0: No, 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 no. Dennis, uh, I think it's pronounced Denis Villeneuve, like whatever. Dennis Villeneuve, the same guy who made Sicario. That's who's directing the new oh. one. Um, and interesting that they got Harrison Ford to be in it as a. I mean, he's playing Deckard and as an old man.
1: Hmm. guess he's not a replicant
0: well maybe he's a special one you know
1: (laughs) just from that unlimited lifespan just be prepared for it to suck
0: you know i don't know you know i've seen uh two trailers for it um and i don't know like it looks like they're at least trying to capture the feel of it i can't i can't tell anything else Based on the, the the trailer, but at least they're trying to capture the feel of it. Edward James almost is in it, by the way, also playing Gaff.
1: Hmm. Although, I think they should uh, leave it alone and make a new film with its own freaking story. Instead of trying to just capitalize on... I mean, you know, look, there are all these people developing for TV series, and they're coming up with interesting new ideas for for cable tv series i mean i know nobody goes to the movies but th- then <laughs> figure i mean i don't know can't they i don't know i mean i understand you know they're trying to they're trying to sell movies and it's it's not easy it's not it's not an easy thing to do anymore because nobody wants to go
0: it's well. It is hard. I mean, not like, in the US. there's so much. You know, the average house in this uh, the average house in this country has Netflix, Amazon, and maybe Hulu. You know what I'm saying? Or Google mm-hmm. Play. Like, like it's something's got to be really, really good to get you out of the house.
1: I know. And the recliner, the motorized recliner, is not <laughs> really enough.
0: I can't go to those motorized recliner theaters. I just fall asleep. Like I've missed three whole movies. <laughs> um. And by the way, Hampton Fancher. Uh, and somebody named Michael Green wrote the new one, so that's sort of interesting that they brought back Hampton Fancher.
1: Yeah, but um, interestingly, I, I think they had a fallout and he got fired from this one. Too. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Probably,
0: I don't know. Like, I'm I'm guardedly optimistic. Like, I really really liked Sicario. Like, we should by yeah. the way, we should do a podcast on Sicario, which I thought was t- great. I thought Arrival was okay, but I thought Sicario was terrific. Um, so I don't know. Like, that's pretty encouraging. Hmm. So I don't know. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. I got to get past
1: my skepticism because I'm a cynical bastard about just making sequels. Because at this point, I've seen so many bad ones that um, I just go into it skeptically. I don't know.
0: Well, and I think you're right to go into it skeptically. I mean, you know, and again, the average person going to see uh, the new one is probably, you know, uh, somebody less than 18 who's going to see Ryan Gosling. I'm not trying to be a dick, but like, I mean, I think that's probably just the reality. And I imagine a lot of people will see Blade Runner after seeing the sequel. They'll be like, wow, that was great. I got to see the other one. You know what I mean? Like if you're a 12 or a 15 year old kid and you see this, you know, you're not going to go see that first. You're going to go see the new one in the theater.
1: Yeah. And then when you see the movies, you're going to think how much the old one sucked and how good the new one is. <laughs> I don't know. The old one's pretty tough to to be. I was
0: actually just saying to my kids the other day that they should watch Blade Runner. Um, I think this is this is this Daryl Hannah's first film. I'm pretty sure it was. Well, I think it's her first real film. Looks like she was in some Drek beforehand, uh, or or either little little bits or or little parts in small movies. But this is her. This is really her breakout role. Uh, and then you know, right after this, she's in Splash. Then all of a sudden, she's a giant star forever, right? You know, except right, we'll, we'll conveniently pretend we never saw the Clan of the Cave Bear.
1: I have the poster. But I mean, what? I have the poster up on my the Clan uh, of the clan. Cave Bear. Yeah, no, I'm kidding.
0: I was like, "Is it framed?" Yes, <laughs> like in uh, like in forty year old version when uh, Steve Carell's character has the framed Toto poster, <laughs> like, like Toto. Like, that's what?
1: perfect. They pick. That's pretty much the perfect thing to pick. How Toto. old is
0: Daryl Hannah? Now is fifty six 56 years old. Wow,
1: someone oh, older boy. than us. Yes, <laughs> phew. At least somebody's older than us. <laughs> Everybody in Blade Runner is older than us.
0: Yeah, That's I guess they'd have. If if Daryl Hannah is the youngest one, I guess she would have to be. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, just looking back on this movie, you know, thirty five years later, I mean, I think that. I mean, there's very, very few sci-fi movies that can touch this. I'm not even talking about things like Star Wars, which are sort of sci-fi action, but like, I mean, this is true high concept science fiction. I mean, I mean, as I say, every single podcast somehow for me, 2001 is the pinnacle of everything, but this is a very close second. You know, like is, is there another science fiction movie between Blade Runner and 2001 in terms of sort of concept and execution? That's really
1: that good. No. I, I don't think so. I think those two are the really the two best. I'm just I don't, trying to
0: think, is there anything else that you could ever? I mean, boy, I don't know. I mean you know, I it's hard to even put alien into this grouping cause alien sci-fi horror. It's hard to put Star Wars into this cause sci-fi action. You know what I mean? I mean, this would have been a good
1: movie if it were just, it, just as from a sort of a film noir standpoint, it was sort of done well, right? And then, but you take that, you tack on all the science fiction aspects of of reality of what humanity is, on top of the dramatic kind of human story, the film noir human story, uh, and and you add the production values which are amazing. I mean the thing is incredibly well done.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at the IMDb top sci-fi movies and and the list is just ridiculous because it's just based on popularity. Like Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is number 1. Jesus Christ.
1: Um well clearly it should be at least in volume 1 should be the number 1. Cheers. <laughs> <Jeez. laughs> Um, i don 't even tell me i don 't even want to look at that it 's depressing <laughs> right like you know you 're in trouble with Guardians of the galaxy Volume Two
0: is listed as the greatest film, the greatest science fiction film of all time
1: coincidentally in the theaters right now
0: <laughs> right <laughs> oh my God um, yeah, I mean I guess you know the, I, you know what I would probably put three in terms of high concept. I would probably put maybe Forbidden Planet. Like, Forbidden Planet mm. might be number three in terms of number of ideas presented in a single film. The problem with for, the problem with Forbidden Planet, by the way, which we should also do a podcast on, it's like, the problem with Forbidden Planet, it's been so heavily ripped off that, like, it doesn't even seem original anymore. Right. And, like, every last thing that you could steal from Forbidden Planet has been stolen. Uh, starting with, by the way, Star Trek, which, which,
1: which stole so much from Forbidden Planet, it's not even funny. Right, it's like the um, Sopranos for a cable series.
0: Right, it's like saying it's like saying that uh, the Nick is better than the Sopranos. As good as the Nick is, like without the, the Sopranos, there is no Nick. Right. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the way, recently I saw some uh, Forbidden Planet stuff went up for auction. Like some of their guns are still exist. Like some of the pistols that they had went up for auction. Uh, one of my more idiotic hobbies as I follow some of these sci-fi uh, auctions. You better get Problem in is, there. For you, gone. you better I get in there and make a bid. But, you know, it's interesting as a lot of these, you know, these, a lot of these props are, you know, 50, 70 years old now. I mean, they are in really, really rough shape. Right. You know, yeah, like but that's these, all there is. No, that's all there is. And, and, uh, you know, everything else has been destroyed and long since gone.
1: Um, we should, yeah, we I should wrap know. soon so that we can, uh, have something for a second podcast. Okay.
0: Yeah. Well, we haven't really talked about legacy a ton, but we can. Um, Okay. Well, I think I think I mean God, you could go on for about nine hours on the making of Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, I have the Paul Salmon book on the making of Blade Runner, which is a pretty quick read, and it's you know it's almost four hundred and fifty pages, and it's a pretty quick read, and I'm sure that there's more that he could have said there.
1: And he Um, apparently wrote that most of it during the making, which I didn't realize. I thought it was done afterward.
0: Yeah, and and he talks about sort of like meeting them and sort of walking around the set. And I think like – and I think like for example, he interviewed – I know that he says in the book that he interviewed Sean Young when she was making Dune. Like he flew down I think to Mexico to interview Sean Young. Um, So, I mean the guy definitely did his homework. It's probably the definitive work on Blade Runner that I know of. Like I've seen other books on Blade Runner but I think by far this is kind of the gold standard one. Right. All right. Well, why don't we wrap there, and then next time we can do Legacy of Blade Runner. Right. All righty. Perfect. We'll
1: see you next time. Thanks, guys.